Good morning all, my name's Lewis, I'm one of the youth leaders, and I get the privilege of um, the Bible reading this morning. So if you guys can read along with me, uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend. You go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship. Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, good morning. How are we? We're good? Good. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to meet you after the service today. It's my privilege to serve as a pastor here at Windsor District Baptist Church, and it's my greater privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, the prayer we're about to look at today is a prayer that is for the disciples plural, and it's meant to remind us that it's a communal prayer. And I wonder if we could just take a minute just to remind ourselves that we're a part of a community. So I'm going to do that awkward extrovert thing where I'm going to ask you to just stand up for like 60 seconds, turn to the person next to them, greet them, say hello, and then come sit back down. Uh, if you wouldn't mind do that, why don't we do that right now? Thanks. I know that you all here, but my heart has been greatly encouraged just being able to see your faces, to be able to worship together. Uh, we don't take that for granted now, uh, but it's uh, really, really nice to be able to come to this text today. Uh, we are finishing off, we're going to take a pause in Luke after this Sunday, but this part of the series we're up to through the Gospel of Luke is looking at the way of discipleship. The way of discipleship. And the, the kind of key point of this whole section is that salvation is the way of discipleship. No one's going to get saved without being a disciple. I'm sorry if I burst anyone's bubble here. You are not going to be saved if you are not following Jesus. If you don't become a learner of Jesus. If you don't be like Mary last week and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen attentively to what he says. This is sort of the theme, and it's kind of the, the, the big truth that ties all of these things together, is that salvation is the way of discipleship. Now, the last three weeks in particular, I think one way to look at them is to see that, that each of these sections, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the story of, of Jesus at the helm of Mary and Martha and Lazarus last week, and then here today, you could, you could put these three in a nice little section called the heart of a disciple. You'll recall that earlier in chapter 10, Jesus said, this spontaneous moment of praise to God after the 72 came back and they talked about how the kingdom of God was coming and, and Jesus said, look, it's all great that you can cast out demons, but rejoice that your name's in the book of life. And then that prompted Jesus to just, just totally forget who he's talking to and spontaneously praise God right there on the spot. And he said, God, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but you've revealed them to little children. And then... You have the expert in the law pops his hand up and he says, um, so 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what follows from that question is these three, these three sections, these three teachings. And I think it really encapsulates the heart of what a disciple is. So we saw a few weeks ago with the parable of the Good Samaritan that the heart of a disciple is one who shows mercy to all. To all. We saw last week Stephen brought a great message for us. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you, if you haven't already. But here, there we saw that the heart of a disciple is one who listens closely to Jesus, puts themselves at the feet of Jesus. Well, here this morning, we're going to see the heart of a disciple is one who inquires after God's heart. There's a laying hold, a taking hold of, a, a seeking, a grasping of the heart of God, the Father in heaven. Now, I want to start with a question. We, we live in the age of superhero movies. You know, there's, there's a Marvel movie out every other week, it seems like, right? I want to ask you this morning, which ability of Jesus would you most like to possess? You, you, you could, you've watched Jesus, you've, you've, you've gone along with him for three years, and you say, he's done some amazing things. I'm just going to give a little list for you, right? He's, he's raised the dead. Now, that's pretty cool, right? He, he's going to walk on water. He can speak to nature and, and immediately bring peace from chaos, okay? He's multiplied food, right? And some of you are hanging out for this. He turned water into wine, right? Some of you are, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that one, right? It's okay. You can laugh. That's all right. <laughs> right? Which ability of Jesus would you most like to possess? Think about that for a minute. If you could take one thing from the life of Jesus and you could put it into your own life, what would it be? I ask that because this section starts with a very direct question, one of the few direct questions we get from the disciples to Jesus. And the question it starts with, this whole discussion starts with is, they see Jesus praying and they say, teach us how to do that. Think about that. You've watched Jesus minister. You've watched him do these amazing things. He's God in the flesh, right? Nature, everything falls, falls in line under his command. He gives life. He does all these things. How many of us would say, you know, the thing that I wish I could have from Jesus is his connection with the Father? That, that's what's behind this question. The disciples have been watching Jesus pray, and they know prayer is a thing. John and his disciples prayed as well. People have been talking to God since it seems like time began. They've been wondering, what, what started all this? How do we all get here? Who am I? What is my purpose? How do, I, how do I get this world that I inhabit to work for me and not against me? People have been seeking God for a long time. But they see something in Jesus, and they want that. That's where all this comes from. The worst thing you can do is listen to this message and come away thinking, okay, now I know how to do that part of my religion. This is not a teaching on religion this morning. This is a foundational teaching on relationship. It's a restoration. It's being brought back into fellowship with God, which is why it's very fitting and appropriate that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning which is a relational ordinance. So please don't hear Jesus talking about prayer and have your little notebook out and say, okay, all right, so I say this word first and then I say this one next and no. <laughs> the big idea this morning is that God invites us to know him through prayer. God invites us to know him through prayer. There's other ways you can know him. You can know him by the faculties of perception that he gave you. You can know him through eyes that can see and ears that can hear and your, your, your senses. You can know him through a rational mind that, that looks at the creation and says, there must be some great cause behind all this that I've seen. You can know him through through the spiritual realm, you, 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 can, you can have a sensitivity to things that, that are beyond the material world. You, you can know him through those things, but there's nothing quite like knowing God through speaking with him. Jesus would say in one of his teachings that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's something special about words that come 
from the mouth. In a culture that's obsessed with sex, what do they always show in movies? I know this because my kids are pointing this out. They show the kiss. Why? Why? Because the mouth is the connection to the heart. And if out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth is speaking, when you fall in love with somebody like that, you want to be as close as possible to their heart, which is vocalized through their words. God invites us to know him through prayer. There's something that happens when we, when we speak to him and when we hear him speak to us. It's an invitation. There's a knowledge that comes, an asking and a receiving. And so this text this morning, Jesus teaches us to pray by revealing God's fatherly heart. That's what you're going to see. You don't see this if you, if you look out. You, maybe if you look carefully and if God gives you grace to see. But most of us, we need to learn this. We don't actually come into this world receiving this knowledge. We need to be instructed in it. And so I hope you hear Jesus' voice this morning. We're going to see three things. I'll come back to this in a minute. We're going to see a pattern for prayer. We're going to hear a parable about prayer. And finally, a promise for prayers. All right? So a pattern, a parable, and a promise. Alliteration. I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Let's pray. I invite you to join me as we come before our Heavenly Father now and ask his help. God in heaven, you are mightier than we can comprehend. Your words never fail. And Lord, in a world full of people who we want to depend on but fail us, we seek your truth. We seek the rock. We seek to hear the word of Christ this morning applied to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you open our eyes? Would you quench our thirst this morning? And may we leave here knowing you better and emboldened to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll begin by looking at the pattern for prayer. Now, this is not the only way you can pray. It's, it, Jesus does say in this text, when you pray, say these words. So yes, you can recite the words that Jesus is saying here. But there's a slightly different version in Matthew. And we know that in the early church, it wasn't necessarily about a formula. You didn't need to just recount these things over and over and over again. But Jesus is going to provide here in these verses a pattern for prayer. Follow with me as we read along. One day Jesus is praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Not teach us how to pray, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, now the you there is plural, this is something that is being spoken to all the disciples. So he's saying, when you collectively pray. Jesus is envisioning this community, the group of those that he's gathered, he's, he's envisioning them petitioning God together. And he gives them five petitions. Three are for the life of the disciple. Two are with respect to God and his kingdom. And this is how they are to pray. First, there's an address. There's one address, Father. When you think about the pattern for prayer, can I just encourage you, stop buying into the world's idea that you're throwing thoughts into the universe. Let's just kill that right now. Christian, you're not throwing thoughts onto the ceiling of the universe like a kid shooting spit wads up in the toilet right? Hoping that something sticks. That's not what it means when we pray. We know that because Jesus tells us who to address. You have to address your prayer to someone. Prayer is less like Twitter and it's more like email, right? You're not just composing thoughts at random saying, I hope somebody somewhere sees this and if they deem me to be a good enough influencer, they might actually choose to listen and read what I say. No. Try sending an email without an address. It doesn't go anywhere. 
you pray to God. And Jesus tells us you call him Father. As Stephen said to the, and during the family service this morning, the word Father there, it, it, it implies not just authority, not just provision, it implies an intimate connection, an intimate relationship, a Father. Now, we have to talk about the fact that earthly fathers disappoint us. And so, if you have an experience of an earthly father who was not safe, who was not faithful, who did not provide, who, who didn't listen to you, I just want to warn you that realize and acknowledge that there could be a temptation to take those thoughts and to put them onto God. But that is not how God presents himself in Scripture. God can be a father without being like your father. Now, being a dad myself, I know I will be a disappointment to my kids. It's inevitable. I don't relish in that fact. I don't discard that fact. But I accept that fact because I am human. But God is perfect. And so he represents a father in every best respect. And so the disciple is invited to address someone who is already attuned to him. Pastor Stephen gave me a book last week on the Lord's Prayers by the Puritan Thomas Watson. If you want to dig into some Puritan works on, on the, the Lord's Prayer, I encourage you to pick it up. I only got a few pages in, but I can tell you, fantastic. It starts by saying, why does God, why, why should we call God Father? What does it mean that he's Father? Well, he's Father in the sense that he is authority over everything, yes. He's Father in the sense that he's also Creator. He made everything. He's a father in the sense that he is the author and originator of love. He's also a father in the sense that he will bring you and has brought you into his family. There's a number of ways that God is a father. You can say he's a father to the entire human race, but the way that a disciple prays to the father here is different than the way that he is a father to the entire human race because... When disciples address God as Father, they're acknowledging that they've been brought into his family through Jesus Christ. Jesus is, in effect, sharing his relationship, much like you might marry into a family. One of the best things that my father-in-law ever did, from the very word go, even before I actually got married, he began to treat me like his own son. I learned so much from that. And I watched so many dads who try to keep the the in-law distinction with, with, their new, with their daughter's spouse. And I think, what a missed opportunity. He's brought in. I was brought in as a son. As disciples, we, we are brought into a family, to a relationship. And so we can address God as Father. That's the first thing. Whenever you pray, you got to have an address. And you need to know the basis of that relationship. Notice now the petitions, the first two petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hallowed is an old word. We don't really use it anymore. Ironically, the closest thing we have to it is Halloween, which is, which is nothing about being holy, really. Interesting how the enemy works there. Hallowed be your name is... It's sort of an older style translation. It's, it's an accommodation by the Bible translators for those of us who memorize this prayer in the King James, right? But what it means is, God, let your name be set apart as holy. Let your name be other. You say, that's a strange way to start a prayer. I usually start a prayer with, God, thank you for the meal that's in front of me. Nothing wrong with that, all right? Oh, it's, it's great to be thankful. But the pattern for prayer is, God, first and foremost, may your name be set apart as holy. What is he saying there? Jesus is saying the disciple's heart in coming to God and communicating with God is first and foremost that God's name, that's important, his name, be set apart as holy. What do we mean by that? Holy means consecrated. Holy means other. Holy means different. Holy means pure. The beginning of this prayer is essentially, Father, 
May the world know you for who you are. May, may your name, your character, everything you stand for, may, may that be holy. I remember when I was in junior high school, well, about year six, I wish I could have bottled up this moment in time. It was about year six, and, and I thought my dad was so cool. He was just like, he was the coolest. I know other kids didn't think that about their dad, but I thought that about my dad. And I, I wanted my friends to meet my dad. You know, he would talk to them, and he, would, he knew how to joke with them, and he was fun, and he'd play around. Sorry if your dad wasn't like that. Mine was, right? And I remember thinking, I just want them to know my dad. That's sort of the heart of this prayer. God, I'm going to, Father, may, may your name be set apart as holy. All the things that you are, may that continue. May that persist. May no, no hint of blemish creep in or seep into to who you are. Now that prayer works multiple ways, doesn't it, right? It, it, it's, it's a seeking of, of God and his glory to persist and to continue, but it also says something about us, doesn't it? Because we bear the name of God. This is the family name now. God, may your name be set apart as holy. And may your kingdom come I love that prayer. May your kingdom come. A kingdom is a realm. A kingdom is a realm with an authority. A kingdom is a realm with an authority and a power. I'm inviting, I'm asking, I'm petitioning, and I'm seeking God. I'm saying, God, I want your realm. I want where righteousness dwells. I want where you are ruling and reigning. That place, that space, I want that to come. Now, if you've been following in the Gospel of Luke, you might be saying, hold on a second. Didn't Jesus just tell the people to go and to, and to go all the towns and say the kingdom of God is here? Isn't the kingdom here? If the kingdom's here, why are they saying, may your kingdom come? A common thing for a lot of us as Christians. We get thrown into one side or the other. Oh, well, the kingdom's coming. Well, I better just sit on my Xbox and flitter away the time until the kingdom gets here. Oh, the kingdom. The kingdom's here. And I better not look like I'm having a hard time because the kingdom's here. Aren't we all so happy? Isn't it great? The kingdom's here. I'm not going to tell anyone about my illness. I'm not going to tell anyone about my temptation. I'm not going to tell anyone about my failure because if I do that, they're going to think the kingdom's not here. No, let's stop that. It's not about saying the kingdom hasn't come. No, it has. Jesus inaugurated it. But it's also a petition to say there is more. There is more. Until Christ is exalted and worshiped unopposed, until every knee has bowed and every tongue has confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that time, the kingdom has not fully arrived. It has come, it is coming, and it will come. And so my petition is, the disciples' petition is, is God, let your name, let your regard continue to be what it is, but may you also bring your authority, power, and your reign into this space, into my life, into the Hawkesbury, into Windsor District Baptist Church, into whatever suburb, whatever street, whatever place you live. Ask him this week. Every morning before your feet hit the floor, and if you sleep on the floor before you stand up, before your feet hit the floor, pray, pray, Lord, may your kingdom come today and start where you're at in my life and work outward. In my home, in my friendships, or my marriages, marriage. <laughs> We're not polygamous, in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> Grammar matters, friends. <laughs> but we pray in these places, right? We invite God's kingdom to come. Next, 
begins the petition for us. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't have time to unpack this, but this is a unique phrase. Many people say that, that, that the New Testament authors have kind of made this up, and there's really two schools of thought. One school of thought is that the, the prayer here is that God would provide. Provide what we need. And that's, that's definitely true. We need God for everything. Every good and perfect gift, we're told, comes down to us from the Father of lights. There's nothing in life you enjoy that didn't originate in God. Can I tell you that? There was no good thing in this life that didn't have its source or its origin in God, your Father. But the early church actually interpreted it a bit differently. Some of the early church interpreted this prayer, give us, give us each day our daily bread, as give us bread for the day the day that is coming. And it was, in essence, it was, it, was a say, it was saying, God, provide for us spiritually what we need. Let us eat from your bread. If you think about the concept of daily bread and you've been reading your Bible pretty intently, you can't help but think about the wilderness generation, how God provided manna every single day. They'd wake up in the morning and there was bread for the day. And Jesus, after he multiplied the loaves and the fishes in John chapter 6, he told them, he said, he said, this bread, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He is the manna. And I, and I don't know how to definitively weigh in on either of those interpretations except to say, can't they both be true? Can't we say, God, would you give me what I need today while also praying, Lord, will you sustain me with Christ today? May I feed on Christ today? May I feed on Christ tomorrow? May I continue to partake of him? I don't know about you, but I need that a whole lot more than I need the gluten that I'm gonna have for lunch today. That's the first petition. The second petition that comes collectively is forgive us of our sins. We talk about this a lot. I just want you to note something here. To forgive is to release, release from us our sins. The idea is that your sin clings to you. You can't get it off. It clings to you. It, it, may, it holds you captive. Would you release us from this? Would you, would you take these sins away from us? Now, here's something unique in the Luke version. Notice the preposition that comes after the comma. Forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, if you thought Matthew was hard, <laughs> because Matthew says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sins, which is, which is effectively saying, God, would you, would you extend to me the forgiveness that I'm extending to others? This goes a step further. It says, God, would you forgive me because I've already forgiven all these people? As one commentator put it, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of saying, I'm not going to ask God for something that I'm not willing to give somebody else. If I so desperately need it, I'm not going to withhold it and then ask God for it. It's a heart check, it's integrity. And finally, and lead us not into temptation. Some versions say the time of trial or testing Testing can be a temptation. It doesn't have to be a temptation, any sort of testing or, or ordeal. And some have noted how ironic this is because Jesus himself will, will be in the garden and he cannot escape the testing. But nevertheless, we can plead for God to lead us in and sometimes through it. Next, we come to this parable, a parable about prayer. This is, if the pattern shows us, look, incorporate these things, you know, know who you're speaking to. When you acknowledge who God is in your relationship with him, then, then you move into to asking that him and his name and his kingdom, that, that they be allowed to flourish and come to fruition in your life. And then ask for the things that you need from God, your provision physically and spiritually, your, your forgiveness, and your protection. Then ask for those things. Here, Jesus gives us a parable. I think this is really helpful because many of us can read the Lord's Prayer and think, okay, here's the pattern I have to pray. I better say the magic words or else nothing's going to happen here. And then we come to this parable. Follow with me. Jesus then said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. 
And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. It's a very interesting scenario, one that our society is not really built around. We need to acknowledge the, the distance between our culture and this culture. In our culture, if you don't have, well, first of all, you, you, you may not take a guest at the last minute. Someone comes by and says, hey, I need to stay at your place. You may say, oh, look, I'm sorry. I just don't have enough time to get ready. You're going to need to find a hotel. And many of us would find that acceptable in our society. That was not acceptable in Jesus' day. Then, let's say you did have them into your home. You might say, well, look, you, you can come stay, but I just, you know, I haven't done my weekly grocery shop yet, so... You can just sort of fend for yourself, see what's there. In Jesus' day, the responsibility was on the host to provide food for the one who came. And then, even if, even if there was a need, and let's say all the shops were shut, you couldn't run down to Woolies or even go through the 24-hour servo and, and, and try and get something, you certainly wouldn't go to your next-door neighbor. <laughs> you wouldn't walk out your front door and say, hi. Sorry, we don't know each other very well. <laughs> but I've just had a late night guest arrive. And would you mind getting out of bed and getting me some food? Now, the other thing is bread was prepared each day. You didn't have a loaf in the freezer that you could pull out and just let fall for a few minutes. You, you didn't have this big old thing of bread. No, you made bread in the morning and it was bread to last the day. The bread for the day is gone. Now, this person's in need. So what's Jesus saying here? He's concocting an absurd scenario. It's absurd because there is no way the friend, the neighbor next door, would not heed the request. This is an absurd story that Jesus tells because he said there is no way that person that you woke up, even though they're in bed with their kids, that's another difference, they all sleep in the same, in the same sort of a one-room house, they're all in bed together, all the parents know, once you get those kids down, man, don't, <laughs> don't let me disturb them, right? As, as, as inconvenient as it is, as much as all these things are happening, there is no way he won't get up and help them. You would not do that. We read it as the shameless audacity like, how dare he interrupt this neighbor who's, who's so busy with his own life. It's probably not, not meant to reflect so much on how dare he even ask, but, but this is a situation that could cause shame. You could translate it as shameless persistence. The one who's run out of food is in a position of shame. He's in a position of, of deprivation. He doesn't have what he needs. And it's a shame on the neighbor if he doesn't provide what he needs. So even though they're friends, how they feel about each other doesn't matter in this scenario. What matters is the need and the inability of the person to provide. And because of the need and because of the inability, you better believe that neighbor's gonna get up and wake the kids up and everything else to make sure that it's covered. This is Jesus is saying, oh my goodness, if, <laughs> if neighbors respond to this kind of need and give as much as necessary, how much, how much do you think God's gonna give? You come knocking on God's door, God, I, 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 need, I need guidance. I don't know what to do, which is a prayer a lot of us pray a lot. Is God going to say, oh, sorry. Oh, I answer those requests at church on Sundays. Sorry, office hours are closed. No. If you say, God, I... I'm at rock bottom. 
If you come into this awareness that, that, that you don't even have a relationship with God and you want to know him and you say, God, can I know you? Of course he's going to answer that prayer. Give you as much as you need. The question is, will we be shameless enough to ask? Will we be shameless enough? Will we lower our pride to actually humble ourselves and put in a position to say, God, I cannot figure it out. God, I don't know how to make myself clean. I don't know how to make myself right. I, 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 I am a failure and I have sinned against you. Do we have the shamelessness to say that? You see, that, I suspect, is why many of us have stopped praying. There's this part of us that says, I think I want to figure it out. Why? I'm not sure in every reason, but I can tell you our society is wired to trade in glory. Think about it. Every post you make, every comment you get, there's a little meter on there. How many likes is that going to get? How many people are going to share that? How many comments are going to go? Everything is tracked, every dollar. Our society is filled with metrics, and the whole purpose of metrics is to elevate or to diminish. You see, our society is wired to trade in glory. And so part of us wants to look around and say, hey, I want some of that shine coming my way. But it's not really exciting when something goes very well in your life and someone says, wow, how did you do that? And you say, I didn't do it, actually. I, I, I'm really hopeless. In fact, you don't really know me well enough if you think that I could accomplish that. The only reason I really have anything that is good or is going well for me in my life is because I asked God for it and he gave it to me. You see, that doesn't sell books. You don't get a queue of people who want to build a platform and a pedestal for you to say, well, actually, if you knew me and you knew how little that I actually contribute to all of this, you would feel, you wouldn't really look at me with that much respect. Jesus is showing this to say, you can trust that the Father is ready to answer, but will we be shameless enough? So we've seen the pattern for prayer. We've seen a parable on prayer that it's meant to invite us to pray. And then Jesus becomes explicit here, and he gives us a promise. This is a promise to prayers. As we come to verses 9 and following. So I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's a command, ask, seek, and knock. But it's not just a command, it's an invitation. You look at each of those things, asking, seeking, and knocking. There is something about them that invites you to participate. Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, get it for yourself, Find the solution and push through. <laughs> Imagine if it said that. So I say to you, look after yourself. Find what you need and push on through. But do we live like that? How much does the Lord have sitting on the other end of this promise for us? I mean, honestly, how much? How much? Has anyone tested it? Has anyone even probed it in their own life? How much is there for you? I'm not trying to get all prosperity doctrine on you. I'm not saying you're going to be all driving Rolls Royces, you know, Range Rovers, whatever you like to drive these days, right? But how much is there? But you see, this command to ask, to seek, and to knock, it's, it's not wish, hope, and dream. It's not internal to you. 
It involves you going to God. Each of those things involves you fronting up. You need to ask. The words need to come out of your mouth. You need to seek. That means you don't need to come up with the meaning of life. You don't need to come up with your own salvation, but you must be invested in looking. And you have to knock. That means when you come, you need to actually lay hold. You need to grab the door. You need to make yourself known and seen and heard before the Lord. You're going to hear a testimony next week, and I've read it already, and I'm really excited. There's a baptism next week, and it's beautiful. Beautiful testimony has been written. I mean, they're all going to be fantastic, don't be wrong. But, but it's beautiful, and I'm not going, to, not going to spoil all of it. But she had a great line in there, what she wrote. She said, she said, God told her, you're trying to be a Christian without Christ. <laughs> Imagine trying to do all the things to be the kingdom of God, to, to, <laughs> to, to live out this holiness and forgiveness without Jesus. It's like you sort of wrap yourself in bubble wrap and, and, and try to keep God at arm's length. It's not going to work. But lest, lest they not get the point, he, he, he drives it home even further. This time in verse 10, the emphasis is on the future and what will happen. Everyone who asks receives. Say it with me. Everyone who asks receives. Come on, we can do it better. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Will be opened. Jesus is going to tell a parable in a few chapters later. Stephen alluded to it last week. It's a parable in chapter 13 of Luke where there's people who come when it's too late. They come when it's too late and they're knocking at the door and Jesus says, I don't know you. And they're shut out. The door's not open for them. But right now, this is what, this is what pertains. This is what is relevant. You can know God right now, today. You may not have ever thought you could know him. You may have never imagined that he would give two wits about who you are. You can know him personally now. He will listen to your words. He will answer your prayer. If you ask Seek and knock. If you're in church, sitting in a chair or a pew, wishing and hoping and dreaming, nothing's going to happen. If you ask and seek and knock, you better believe you'll be invited into the kingdom. And again, just to drive home the promise even further, Jesus takes a story and he puts it on, on, his, on the disciples. He says, which of you fathers... Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? My kids have never asked me for fish. <laughs> Unless it's battered in some form or another, right? <sighs> right? But the kid is asking for food. He's asking for something he needs. He needs this food. Can I have this fish? Which, which of you fathers will give him a snake? Oh, I know you're hungry and I know you need, I know you need food. Here's this deadly animal. Right? Who, who in asking for their, for their provision is going to be given something that is deadly? Same thing later. Or if he asks for an egg, again, nourishment, sustenance, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? First of all, just notice how, you know, this Jesus jumps right into the debate. Are people basically good? Are people basically evil? <laughs> he just sort of answers it right there. Yes, you're evil, and yes, you can do good things. There you go. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's a child asking for, for just basic needs. Who's going to give them something that will destroy them? Now, 
If you've been following closely in Luke's gospel, the, the, the idea of a snake and a scorpion actually occurred not, not too many verses before this. It's when the disciples came back and they were rejoicing because Jesus just told them to proclaim the kingdom and they're shocked because the evil spirits are flying away and people are getting freed and healed and redeemed. And Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the work of the enemy. Okay? Here, notice the snake and the scorpion appear again. You say, what's going on? The child has a need and God is saying, he's not like the devil. God's not like the devil. It's not a yin and yang situation. The light side and the dark side and you gotta sort of work out how to, no. God is nothing like Satan. But do you notice how Jesus has completely just undone the curse and the fall and everything that happened in the Garden of Eden? You see, human beings were related to God. They were, they were worshiping him. They, they, they were partaking. They were in fellowship with God. He made all these trees and he was satisfying them. And then the serpent came along one day and said, you know, do you think God would really give you what's best? Jesus is saying, God's not going to treat you like the devil. He's not going to undermine. You ask him for what you need, he's going to give you what you need. You, you, you come looking for, for what is good and what is holy and is right, of course he's going to give it to you. Now, Matthew in his version of this has, how much more will your father give good gifts? But here Luke puts the focus here. He says, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, be honest with me. Some of you are sitting here thinking, Look, thanks God for the Holy Spirit. What I really want is a wife. <laughs> what I really want is a new job. <laughs> what I really want is more money in my bank account, right? Uh, is this just some sort of overly spiritualized thing? I don't think so. I don't think so, but I want to put it to you this way. I'll introduce it like this. One of, uh, I love being a dad, but by far the hardest thing about being a dad, one of the hardest things about being a dad is that my time is limited. I do not have infinite time. I cannot work, love my wife, engage on a deep level with all of my children, be a neighbor, be a friend, all at the same time. I can't do all of that at the same time. And so what life looks like often, particularly if you come to my house on a Saturday, is I'll be doing something, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm helping out doing dishes or I'm cl cleaning things up, and one of my children will be there and will say, Dad. Yep, just a minute. Dad. Yep. Dad. 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 Dad! Yes, what do you want? Just give me a minute, let me just finish this. 60 seconds goes by. Dad. Dad. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. And finally, I just like, okay, we will play a game. <laughs> Fine. I'll give you something to eat, okay. It's terrible. Do you know what I wouldn't give? What I wouldn't give to take part of myself and say, here, I'm just going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my heart. I'm just going to be with you. So we'll go. We'll go play a game. And then when you want to talk, we'll talk. And when you need someone to pat you on the back, I'll pat you on the back. And you might not be able to see me, but you'll have my voice in your head saying, I love being your dad. You're my son. You're my daughter. Do you know what I wouldn't give to be able to do that? I could not imagine a better gift to give. That's what the Father does when you ask. He says, I'll give you my spirit. 
And Jesus would say in John's gospel, I will make my home in you. We will come to you. We will make our home in you and we will be with you. I often get asked from time to time, how are you going being so far away from family? In case you couldn't tell by now, I'm not from this place. (laughs) And I get asked, how are you going? And I typically respond with, yeah, you know, going okay, pretty well. Australia is a lovely place. It is a lovely place, full with beautiful, lovely people. I I love the people here. I do miss my family, which is true. And I was struck this week as I was meditating on God as our father. And I was thinking, you know, what I miss about my dad as an adult, it's not the meals that he took me out for. It's not the house that I grew up in. It's not an allowance. It's not the presents I got at Christmas, as Stephen pointed out this week. I don't miss those things. You know what I miss about my dad? I miss his voice. I miss his availability. I miss the witness that he was to my life. I miss knowing that he saw. I miss knowing that he was there because his presence was irreplaceable. I don't know what your earthly dad was like. This father that is waiting to hear you says, I will be with you. The spirit of my son will indwell you and I will go with you and I will be there. And Jesus says, all you need to do is ask. Disciples receive God's kingdom because they asked for it. They asked for it. When's the last time you asked for it? You see... The truth is we can know God. The question is, do we want to? Disciple's a fancy term, but it really just means someone who wants to learn from Jesus. Someone who wants to walk with him.